all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View, episode 493. We are going to be talking about how to prepare for Omicron. We talked last week, 492, about the science and the details and all of that. So if you're looking for that base information, definitely listen to that show first. But this week we're addressing all of the questions that have been coming our way, um, including, you know, given that it is, as we talked about last week, so contagious, so pervasive, what can we do before and after um, if we are to get it? And why I'm, I'm going to go in an assumption here based on last week. It's not a good idea to try to get it um, and all of that information. So if you have questions, this is the week for you, I think. We're going to be talking about a lot of that. And just as a reminder, we have 26 pages of show notes that we started with. Um, we already discussed kind of the, the first half. So we'll put Links in the show notes for you of references and all those things. But again, if you're looking for the science, a lot of that is going to be in 492, last week's episode. And I want to build on all of the groundwork that we laid last week about the virulence and the infectiousness of Omicron and answer, I think, is the most important question and the one that I have seen all over the internet which is, you know, if this is a, and we talked last week about how I feel about using the term mild. uh, So let's say a proportionally less severe variant of Omicron and, you know, given a, a really good level of protection, especially from a booster shot against severe disease. And given the, the data that we talked about last week, that getting Omicron does increase antibodies against other variants of concern, specifically Delta, should we try to get it? Is this the one to go get to protect ourselves against, you know, some potential more severe variant of concern down the road? And the short answer to that question, in in my estimation, is no. We definitely should not be going to Omicron parties to try to get it. That being said, this is incredibly contagious. It is um, a higher level of community spread right now across the globe than anything we've experienced in the pandemic up to this point. And so there's a there's an in-between, right? No, I, I think it's reckless to try to go out and get it. And we'll go into the science of, of why that's that's my conclusion. But also at the same time, I don't want anyone to feel guilty if they do get it. And I will share that we've actually had it this past week. So um, so I think uh, that's probably the best thing I can do to, to help people feel um, feel able to let go of the guilt is, you know, to share that 
we're a family that has been very risk averse and that has taken every precaution that we have the power to take. And, um, we, we couldn't avoid Omicron. So, um, so this show is also very timely in terms of, um, how to prepare to hopefully aim for the most mild possible case and the, the best possible outcome. But let's start with that first part of the question of like, why not try to get it? And the answer is long COVID um, and other possible consequences of COVID-19 infection, right? So the scientific word for this is sequelae. It means a thing that happens as a result of something else. So thing that happens biologically as a result of COVID-19 infection. And what we know after about two years of, of this global pandemic is that the rates of long COVID are very high. And there's now been these really large studies, systematic reviews, which our listeners will know uh, are my favorite kinds of scientific papers where they can pool data from many, many studies in order to really start looking at magnitude of effect and drilling down on those statistics. And uh, there was a recent one, again, we always put links to the papers that we talk about on the show in the show notes, uh, a recent one that looked at dozens of different studies and they divided them based on how um, how long they were following up. So how, what percentage of people had still had at least one symptom uh, following one month. So after one month of the onset of symptoms of COVID-19. And then they looked at two to five months and they looked at six months or more. And what was really interesting, even though the variability was sort of different in each of those ranges of time, the average was basically just over half. So it was 54% at one month, 55% at two to five months, and 54% on average at six months, which really shows a very high level of continuing health challenges that are not still being sick with COVID-19, but that are the result of COVID-19. Um, this paper then went down to break down what the most common uh, symptoms that were ongoing uh, as part of long COVID were. Um, so 62% uh, had some kind of abnormality in chest imaging. So that'd be something like myocarditis, pericarditis. 24% um, just about had difficulty concentrating. So brain fog. Um, generalized anxiety disorder was nearly 30%. General functional impairments, which basically refers to any kind of symptom that makes you not able to do your normal activities. So that could include uh, fatigue. It could include anxiety. It could include brain fog. It could include um, difficulty breathing, right? So it can include something both cognitive or, or physical or both was 44%. And then fatigue or muscle weakness were pulled together at 30, just over 37%. Um, other things that they saw were um, skin uh, issues, digestive issues, ear, nose, and throat disorders, and various cardiac disorders as um, possible ongoing health challenges following COVID-19 in this systematic review. Um, there's another systematic review that has not been peer-reviewed yet that is on the preprint server, but is from, a, again, a very reputable research group that actually um, did more breakdown in terms of 
regions and demographics for long COVID, which was also very interesting. So it probably won't surprise any of our listeners to know that females had higher rates of long COVID than males. So uh, 49% compared to 37%. Um, But what's also really interesting is there are regional differences in terms of the long COVID rates. And where we are in North America, we actually have the lowest long COVID rates of the regions that were um, examined in this systematic review. So we have about 30, 30% compared to right the other systematic review that said a little over half that's looking globally. Um, and they showed that um, the rates were quite a lot higher in Europe and Asia. So um, about half in Asia, uh, just under half in Europe. Um, And again, they looked at what were the most common symptoms. Uh, So they include fatigue, uh, difficulty breathing, getting short of breath on exertion or having persistent cough. So any kind of difficulty breathing were the highest prevalence ongoing symptoms. And there's also been um, some other studies that have now been able to look out beyond a year. So uh, this is really important because there's a really big difference between a long tail of, you know, recovering back to full health versus something that might be a new long-term health challenge. And so these are the types of of papers that are trying to differentiate that. So this paper was um, out of uh, Wuhan, China, and it looked at patients after a year after they were discharged from the hospital um, for their COVID-19 infection. So this was people with severe disease, right? They're hospitalized. And it showed that a year later, 45% still had at least one symptom, which is the diagnostic criteria for for COVID-19 is one symptom at least one month out. And the most common symptoms were fatigue, sweating, chest tightness, anxiety, and muscle aches. So there's obviously some, some differences between regions, between sexes, between um, you know people who had more severe disease uh, versus mild disease. And the reason why there is this sort of spectrum is because long COVID is more like is most likely not just one thing. So there's actually multiple different mechanisms that have been identified that can explain the symptoms, but they point to different disease etiology. So different causes for what that long COVID is. Um, so the the most recent sort of news study, Stacy, you actually sent me these studies that were really fascinating um, to read is um, studies showing that it's the microclots. We talked about microclots uh, quite early on in our COVID shows as we were sort of talking about the growing list of symptoms and how so many of the symptoms of COVID-19 infection could be explained by it being just as much a microvascular uh, infection as it was a, a lung infection. And what's really fascinating is this has been explored now in great depth um, by researchers, and they've actually shown that the spike protein of um, the novel coronavirus 
actually helps to bind together our clotting factors. So it activates our clotting factors. Clots are some of the most amazing biology in terms of the the cascade of events that occur in order for them to happen. Really important because if we didn't clot uh, one scratch and that'd be the end of us. Um, so clotting is just like a fascinating biology. And what's uh, really, uh, well, intellectually interesting is that the spike protein actually activates clotting factors and then causes them right to clot. And those clots then incorporate the spike protein in them. And there's something about this very unique biology of these microclots being formed that researchers have now found that these clots are resistant to the normal biological processes in our bodies that would break them down. So normally, if you form a clot, uh, let's say you cut yourself, you're, you form a clot, then there's additional healing that happens, right? Clotting is just the quick, let's stop the bleeding. And then we're going to, right, we're going to make new skin, we're going to heal these blood vessels, right? There's a, a very long, much more protracted amount of healing that happens. And part of that longer healing process is breaking down the clots. Um, so that's why if you scrape yourself, the scab will eventually fall off. But also while you cut yourself, eventually it'll heal clean, right? Like maybe you'll have a scar, but it's, you don't, you can't see the blood clot anymore, right? So the body's breaking down that blood clot. And so what these researchers showed was there's something about how the spike protein is integrated into these microclots that they're resistant to being broken down by our normal biological processes, which means that a couple of things. So first of all, they are housing inflammatory mediators. So as our body is trying to break them down, they're actually continuing to perpetuate inflammation. And part of that perpetuation of inflammation is actually contributing to further blood clotting. So there may be a, again, sort of like that long tail of continuing to make microclots even after we've recovered from the acute phase of the infection. And then uh, the other part of it is, right, these microclots, they're blocking typically capillaries, right? So the smallest type of blood vessels in our body. And those are the, the blood vessels that make sure that oxygen is getting to every single cell in our body. And they also are taking waste products from those cells back, you know, out to be then right filtered through the liver and kidneys and excreted. And so what microclots do is they cause these very, very small regions of hypoxia, low oxygen environments. And these researchers postulate that these microclots causing hypoxia potentially anywhere in the body is why we can see such a diverse range of symptoms in long COVID and that it's um, explained by the persistence of these microclots because they're so resistant to, to break down by the body. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, an easy way to create good habits in 2022. Subscribe! I have loved ButcherBox for years, and I love that we're able to offer such a great deal for you listeners. Get two pounds of ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. Those are my favorite deals because it's like unlimited savings. <laughs> 
That's forever. Right. And I love the convenience of ButcherBox's humane and sustainably raised meat, shipped for free, frozen for freshness. It helps me save time for other things I want to prioritize in my life. Agreed. And no guilt about it because ButcherBox is a certified B Corp that does right by the people and planet. They pack fresh and shipped frozen for convenience in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box that is delivered right to your door when you need it so you can save time on your next grocery store trip. And you're able to adjust the delivery frequency both up and down as needed, always with free shipping. They have seasonal add-ons as well, which I love to take advantage of. It's all super simple on their site with a variety of boxes to choose from, including a custom box, which is what we do. They source meat and seafood from partners with the highest standards for quality. That means higher levels of important nutrients. For example, the conjugated linoleic acid content of grass-fed beef is up to 500% higher than grain-fed. And it has more omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin A, vitamin E, B vitamins, calcium, magnesium, potassium... Plus, it tastes great. Almost all the meat and seafood our family eats comes from ButcherBox. Indeed. You can be assured that the beef is grass-fed and finished, chicken is free-range organic, and seafood is wild-caught. No antibiotics or added hormones. They're focused on quality, both for you, the animal, and the planet. This is your chance to never have to shop for ground beef again. That's right. ButcherBox is giving new members free ground beef for life. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash whole view and get two pounds of ground beef in every order for the life of your membership. Log on to butcherbox.com slash whole view and claim this deal. I just want to interject so many things about first my personal experience with all the symptoms that you were talking about and also the super interesting science on where um, this might be coming from and why it affects different people so many different ways. Um, I think that, you know, for over a year, a year and a half, you and I have each been trading back and forth articles about long COVID, right? Like, because there's so much um, we think or we're looking into or the research suggests. And what was interesting about this microclot article was it was kind of like the first of, hey, no, we, we really think we have figured it out. And it did make sense all across the board. Um, I just, I know I get a lot of personal questions about long COVID, and I do want to emphasize that, you know, one of the things that you said earlier was it affects or can affect, you know, men and women differently. And early, early on, one of the things that I realized was that my brain fog was worse during certain parts of my cycle. And I think had I not been so in tune with my own body and using my brain a certain way on the regular and um, having a very regular cycle, um, I wouldn't have necessarily noticed all those things. And I think that probably also leads to a lot of the differentiation between different countries. Like if I had to Yes, there are some people who probably have long COVID who don't even realize it because it can be mild, right? Like when you describe something like 
brain fog or muscle weakness, you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know, I've been in quarantine a year and a half or, you know what I mean? Like it might not be something that you recognize as being associated with that. So it's it's very nebulous and that makes it difficult to um, both track and kind of like figure out the science on. But it has been the biggest messaging that I've had. And I think, you know, I mentioned last week on the Patreon, hearing people say, I'm going to, I'm going to seek this out, or I'm not going to try to avoid this because it's mild, and then I'll get good immunity from it, and it'll be fine. I'm like, but but have you not listened to me? <laughs> like, it feels like a slap in the face. Like, but I'm telling you, it's really awful if you get long COVID. And there are now avenues within the government to collect disability. Because I am lucky with how mild my long COVID is. And it has definitely gotten better over the last couple of months. Um, as I have really focused on reducing my inflammation with coffee and increasing my sleep and all the things that we've talked about, right? Like, but I will say that, you know, not a lot of people are as lucky as me and have been unable to perform their duties and functions at work and those kinds of things. And so this isn't just a number. I think we've been dealing with COVID for so long. We're so used to hearing like the statistics and the numbers increase. And I think we're close to 900,000 deaths. And that is a huge number. And we talk about that and that percentage rate a lot. But if we think about the likelihood of, well, if I do get this Let's go with one third. Let's say that that's the that's the number because it's different, you know, everywhere. I have a one third chance of having a long tail of this and it potentially affecting my cognitive function and or my physical function. Is that something that we really are willing to sign up for? Like that's it surprises me. And I think the real issue is that it just hasn't been communicated well because it's not sensational right in the news or whatever it is but like this to me is so important and I'm I'm glad we're kind of like diving into it now and part of the reason we haven't fully been able to dive into it is just because the science has been kind of like well we don't know and we've shared as much as we could but I hope that people take this opportunity to not just themselves, but also like talk to loved ones and people that you know that have maybe had COVID and see if they have some of these symptoms because yeah. um, getting treatment and and making your medical professionals aware um, is definitely something that is important. And I know for me, when um, I got my physical when I was 40, when I had my 40th birthday and I did all that health stuff, um, one of the things that I talked about was the increase in anxiety. And I couldn't really come up with where it was coming from because I had done all these other things. And I'm like, I just, I'm like, when I go to bed at night, I have this overwhelming, what would be generalized anxiety disorder, as you mentioned, right? Like I just cannot shut off that part of my brain, even though I'm doing everything that I know I need to be doing, like, you know, um, 
I don't want to call it meditation, breathing exercises, mindfulness, <laughs> right? Like I'm doing all those things and I'm also, you know, actively working to not do some of the things that cause me anxiety. For example, I know that if I drink alcohol, it increases my anxiety. So I haven't been drinking alcohol, you know, like different things like that. And I still could not get my anxiety under control. And the doctor was like, well, let's, let's get some medication like that, that will help you. And we've talked so many times in the show about how medication is part of modern science is so helpful. And it felt to me, as much as I advocate for mental health and all of these kinds of things, like a failure that I would need to take something for that. But you know what? I feel so much better. (laughs) And eventually, I hope that I get to the point where my log COVID tail is not as long, right? I hope that it's not a forever thing that I'm experiencing, that I continue to prioritize these things that reduce the symptoms and increase my health, reduce the inflammation, and um, can address some of these microclots or, you know, whatever might be happening, allowing my body a chance to heal. But in the meantime, we have to take care of ourselves and get the benefit of living our life as best we can with the quality of life that we deserve. And if we ignore some of these symptoms or we think it's because, oh, I just didn't work out as much while I was in quarantine and that's why I'm having a difficult time physically or, you know, these different things. If you're not talking to a doctor about this, it could have longer term effects that we're not aware of or there might be things that they can advise to do otherwise because we're not medical professionals. We're not here to tell you what to do. We're simply looking at what the science says about what this can do to your health. And um, it has been, it has been a journey. <laughs> yeah. And I, I am so glad that you emphasized the importance of making sure there's documentation. So one of the things that's really interesting as we talk about the other two possible causes of long COVID and sort of looking at long COVID as maybe a spectrum or an umbrella um, of, of different conditions. Um, it's really important to make sure that your doctor is aware of what potential long term symptoms that you might be experiencing, because as research is ongoing, you know, one of the things that researchers are focusing on is understanding what long COVID is so that we can understand how to treat it. And, you know, right now there's, um, you know, there's certainly, depending on, you know, different types of tests and stuff, there's certainly some things that doctors are doing, but there's not really like a cohesive, you know, standard of care for long COVID right now. So um, it's really important to get that documented so that the there is the impetus for, you know, grant money to go towards long COVID research. Uh, we want um, you know, want pharmaceutical companies to to be looking at, at this as well and potentially developing treatments, right? Like all of that is motivated by understanding how big the problem is. And right now, you know, the thing about being in the middle, right, we're, we're in the middle of the pandemic and trying to 
you know, take in the new information as things change and continuously reassess our, our level of, of risk that we're comfortable with, right? And we're, we're trying to make these day-to-day -day decisions. And meanwhile, science is also trying to keep up, right? Scientific studies are, are they've, there's never been such a short period of time between when studies are performed and when it's talked about in, in the media or in just the, the public dialogue. And we're at a, a time where we're just trying to understand, right? We're under try, trying to understand best practices, the scope of the issue, and and get to a fix as, as quickly as possible. So I think it's really important to make sure that, um, that if you are having any kind of long-term symptoms, whether you're already having them or whether you just save this piece of information for later, make sure that it's documented. Um, because microclots are just one possible explanation. One of the other explanations for long COVID, and maybe it's just a different long COVID thing, is that it, it also looks like a new autoimmune disease. So there have been now a number of studies that have measured uh, a new autoantibody that is not seen in any other known autoimmune diseases uh, against ACE2. So our listeners will probably recognize that ACE2 is the receptor that the novel coronavirus binds to to enter our cells. And we've talked about this on the show before, but not for a very long time. So ACE2 is part of what's called the renin-angiotensin system. So this is a very, very complex hormone system in the body that regulates blood pressure as well as fluid and electrolyte balance. And it also you know, does things like regulate vascular resistance, which is part of regulating blood pressure. So you know, how um, constricted or dilated blood, blood vessels are. And what ACE2 itself does is it degrades another hormone in the renin-angiotensin system called angiotensin 2. And by degrading angiotensin 2, ACE2 basically is a, a negative regulator of the renin-angiotensin system. So that has the net effect of lowering blood pressure. And that is why high blood pressure has been such a major risk factor for a more severe co course of COVID-19 because of uh, basically you're already in a in a in a in a biological state where you have a lower levels of ACE2. So when the spike protein binds to your ACE2 and makes it inactive, then your blood pressure can get even higher. So it's it's because of that that high blood pressure has been one of the the most important major risk factors. ACE2, this receptor is also found in basically most blood vessels, but arteries in particular, heart, kidneys, and intestines. And what scientists have now discovered is in patients with uh, COVID-19 infection, uh, they've found these ACE2 autoantibodies in a very large percentage of them. So they've looked at people with no history of COVID-19, no ACE2 autoantibodies. Uh, people with who are hospitalized, actively hospitalized, over 90% have these autoantibodies. And the amount of autoantibodies has also been shown to potentially be a risk factor for mortality. And then in people recovering 
from COVID-19, about 80% have these autoantibodies. And so what the mechanism would be then for explaining all of these symptoms is if our bodies are making antibodies against ACE2. That means that our own antibodies we're making are binding to ACE2 so that ACE2 can't degrade angiotensin 2. So then you end up with this increase of angiotensin 2. So you increase blood pressure, but also angiotensin 2 is pro-inflammatory. So that drives inflammation as well. And so like all autoimmune diseases where inflammation is, is part of, of the disease. It's the inflammation that, and the dysregulation of, of blood pressure and, uh, right. Blood pressure, fluid balance, electrolyte balance. I mean, that can itself just lead to a lot of the symptoms that we're seeing. So it's, that is another, you know, well, uh, it's a really good explanation for the spectrum of symptoms in COVID-19 with really good evidence for it being a possible mechanism of, of long COVID. And we don't know if it goes hand in hand with the microclots or if this is a whole separate thing. So it's quite possible that a percentage of long COVID are just damage from the microclots and another percentage of long COVID is a new autoimmune disease that we don't have a name for yet. Well, I guess the name is long COVID. And then the third possibility that there's pretty good evidence for is, at least in some people, persistent infection. So their bodies are just not fully uh, getting rid of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so, again, this has been sort of relatively recently um, published studies done in a very rigorous fashion where they did autopsies and looked for RNA from uh, the SARS-CoV-2 and then did an assay to look at um, whether or not the virus was alive from different tissues, from patients who either died from COVID-19 or died with COVID-19. Um, so COVID-19 was the primary cause of death. They just, something else uh, was the cause of death and they just happened to have COVID-19. And that also allowed these researchers to look at uh, mild and even asymptomatic COVID-19 up to 230 days after infection. And what these researchers found was that uh, the virus was, you know, not just in the lungs. It was in multiple areas of the body, um, including in the brain, and that it was still viable. So the virus could still replicate itself um, for, again, up to 230 days following symptom onset. Um, so this research shows that at least in some people, uh, this virus can cause a systemic infection, right? Not just a lung infection. And it can persist in the body for months. So that is another possibility in these explanations for, for long COVID, right? So microclots, a new autoimmune disease, and persistent infection. And the, the, all of these three things may also overlap, which is another possible explanation for, as Stacey was mentioning, the, it's not just the spectrum of symptoms that are experienced, but the spectrum of severity of symptoms that are experienced, right? There's already estimates that there's um, 
up to two to three million Americans who are uh, have severe enough symptoms from long COVID that they qualify for disability. So the this this entire spectrum uh, of symptoms may be because of multiple different things going on in the body at the same time contributing to long COVID. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We talk about BetterHelp a lot on the show, and this month we are discussing some of the stigmas around mental health. People are often taught that going to therapy means there's something wrong with you, but mental health is part of normal life. We take care of our bodies with movement, the doctor, and nutrition. We need to focus on our minds just as much. Absolutely. And I love that we can recommend a service that will match people with a licensed professional therapist based on your specific needs. I have benefited greatly from therapy, as has my family, ranging from just having someone to talk things through with to skill-building workshops offered by my therapist. Same. Therapy has been life-changing for our family. If you haven't had success or ever tried, let BetterHelp match you. They provide access quickly for clients worldwide. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. You can even read testimonials about their therapist posted daily at betterhelp.com reviews. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And they have information on their website about insurance coverage, too. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the whole view listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash wholeview. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash wholeview. I think from all the reading that I've done, not just from the science, but I'm also in communities or um, following educators of um, long COVID and what I can only guess, right? Because I'm I'm giving the Stacy uh, interpretation of facts versus exactly what the science says. But Fair. from from what I can surmise, it's the um, microclots associated with the autoimmune disease, right? I think if we kind of like looked in, and I'm sure eventually they'll dig in and all of this kind of stuff. But I do think that it would make sense if you already have an autoimmune disease, we know that you're prone to another. And we know that um, it's a possibility that it's activating this new autoimmune disease. I mean, we're seeing that it that it is, and we're also seeing microclots. I don't think that one is necessarily exclusive of the other. So to me, when I think about this, I think of that just needs to come come together and whatever the vernacular is and the science is, I, th- I think that they'll make sense together. I think what's interesting in the persistent infection element is that we've seen from the data that that's something that can persist in the body for months, but the majority of people who um, have the persistent infection versus something like um, 
the autoimmune disease markers and the microclots and all that kind of stuff as being like over a year. So from, and also uh, we didn't mention the persistent infection people are the ones who appear to be having a positive response from additional exposure as actually helping them get rid of the infection. So there was um, hope that I had that when I got the vaccine, that that would actually alleviate my long COVID symptoms. And for people with persistent infection, that was happening in a percentage of people who got the vaccine, but that didn't work for me. And when I had my blood work done and all that stuff earlier this year, there was not signs of persistent infection. Um, There was signs of, you know, inflammation, which is not a surprise (laughs) given I have multiple autoimmune diseases and long COVID. So, you know, to me, it's kind of like where my mind went into rationalizing all of this. Like I hear, well, there's three hypotheses. And I, I think there is a way to, at least in my brain, put all those puzzle pieces together where they actually do make sense together. And there is some overlap. And the problem is just, I, I genuinely think that individuals have a difficult time self-diagnosing. And because it's not something that our doctors are educated on, right? Like even my doctor who was like, well, there's a study happening at Georgetown Hospital in DC. And, you know, it's like, but I don't know how to get you in because it's already underway. And there isn't really, you, you have to seek out, you know, people who are trying to help and learning as they go in terms of treating people with long COVID because it's it's all new. Just the same way that, you know, the medical community is now trying to treat um, for, I know we're not going to get into this and I'm going to mention it. You're going to be like, Stacey, don't mention it. But like the COVID pill, right? Like it's, we're all learning and we're researching and we're trying to figure it out. And I think that's one of the things with long COVID is because it wasn't, known right away. It wasn't understood right away. We're a little bit behind the eight ball on what is it? How do we treat it? How do we help people with it, unfortunately? Yeah, I I mean, I agree completely. And I think, you know, one of the benefits to, uh, you know, the antivirals that are in development is they're based on really long understood, uh, you know, biological processes in viruses and all of the studies that were done on coronaviruses in the past, whereas long COVID is new. So it's going to take a while to catch up on understanding all of the different mechanisms that are contributing and then what are the intervention points, right? So what are the things that we can do to break down those microclots in a safe way? Or, you know, uh, I mean, the entire autoimmune disease community would love some ways to get the immune system to regulate itself so it didn't make autoantibodies anymore. You know, if there's a, a medication that can do that for, that's not just a broad immune suppressant, like what, you know, most disease modifying drugs are now, um, if there's something that can be developed for, for long COVID as an autoimmune disease, that might have broader applicability, which would be also very cool. I also think it's really important to emphasize that long COVID is not the only possibility. So um, there's uh, was a brand new study just a couple weeks ago that showed that the risk of developing diabetes after COVID-19 infection was higher. So they uh, researchers had two different databases and analyzed the data from both databases separately. 
in one database, the risk of developing di- diabetes uh, was uh, was over double. It was 2.66 times higher uh, than people without COVID-19. And this is in a 30-day window after COVID-19 infection uh, compared to matched controls, right? So people with very similar age and demographic and health histories. And in another database, it wasn't, it wasn't as big a difference. It was 31% higher. So again, this is why I love meta-analyses and systematic reviews, because they're really good at drilling down on the exact magnitude of effect. But what this study shows is a very clear effect. And whether it's 30% higher or 2.6 times higher, that remains to be seen. We need more data. Um, but that is potentially people who were pre-diabetic and the amount of inflammation was enough to tip them over, um, or something else going on, uh, you know, the, maybe the virus infecting the pancreas and harming the pancreas's ability to, to form insulin. Like we don't know yet. Um, but that's another, another, you know, possible sequelae of COVID-19 And then I think the other thing I feel like isn't discussed as much, um, my my brother had a breakthrough case a couple weeks ago, and he, even though we talked about on the show last week that the rate or the frequency of people who are losing their sense of smell is much lower with Omicron, he did, and it still hasn't come back. And there, that's actually really common. I have a dog walking friend who had COVID-19 around the same time you did, Stacey, and still can't taste or smell. Um, Right now, there's estimates that at least 1.6 million Americans have long-term chronic olfactory dysfunction following their infection. means long-term, something wrong with with smell. (laughs) And that also, um, I mean, that's quality of life for, for starters, but there's, there's times where being able to smell something could, could, is really, really important for safety. For example, you want to be able to smell if there's a gas leak at the pump when you're filling up your car. Um, there there's smell is a important sense. And, uh, that's a lot of Americans who can't smell right now. Yeah. I have a neighbor who not just sense of smell, but sense of taste is still affected as well. I mean, they're so closely tied, but some get just one or the other. And um, it's super sad. Like when we have, um, we're not doing Maj anymore, but, you know, when cases were lower, we were doing Maj and people would bring snacks or drinks and she just could not enjoy any of it and was just disappointed anytime she would try anything because it didn't taste the way it was supposed to or she had remembered. And um, I think when we consider the impact, not just, you know, I think safety is a really good point. Simple things like, is this food gone bad is also, you know, like a safety concern. And there are people whose livelihood depends on their ability to smell or taste, Mm -hmm. you know, people who cook food for a living. And um, there's just such broad applicability of how harmful this is. And it had an increased risk of death. And understandably, that was a focal point to get people to understand the differentiation of it versus, you know, other things, the common cold, the flu or whatever. But I think it's important to understand we now know a lot more about COVID in general. 
you know, we're talking about Omicron today and this information, I just want to emphasize, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, is based on just COVID-19, right? We're not talking about Omicron itself as having a higher or lower risk of long COVID, but that correct in general, COVID-19, these are risks associated if you do get it, that we we don't know that Omicron, for example, is, quote unquote, a mild case and therefore you won't get it. In fact, the science shows that people with mild cases are, is it just as likely or more likely to get long COVID, right? Like, because I had a mild case and I have long COVID. So just because it's a more mild version of COVID-19 with a potential for reduction in death doesn't mean that it doesn't have the ability to harm health long term. And that's what we love to focus on here on the show is increasing your health long term for quality of life. And there's a lot of things that we just talked about that reduce quality of life. Um, I I mean, I'll recap them for you, but cognitive function, Mm -hmm. physical function, uh, higher likelihood of negative long term effects to many organs, including your heart. Uh, We talked about the potential for pancreas as the damage of increasing your risk of diabetes. I think there's also a risk of higher blood pressure. Um, There's stroke. stroke, uh, And people who end up having stroke are sometimes losing limbs. Uh, So none of those people would go into the category of death toll, right? But when I think about what I don't want, um, all of that is on the list. And so if you are able to avoid it, obviously that's ideal. If you have been vaccinated, it reduces the chance of long COVID. We talked about that. Do you remember which show that was, Sarah? I don't remember offhand. What's interesting is the the subsequent studies that have looked at uh the chances of long COVID from breakthrough infection haven't really hammered home what exactly how much reduced it is. So there's one study that showed there was no reduction in risk of long COVID following a breakthrough infection versus natural infection. And then other studies have ranged anywhere between like half the rate to one tenth of the rate. So it's kind of right now it's all over the place and it's really hard to make a really strong statement about, um, whether or not the risk of long COVID is that different from a breakthrough infection, but they're also looking at symptomatic infections, which means, you know, your risk, your absolute risk is definitely lower because your risk of a symptomatic infection is lower, especially if you're boosted. Um, And those studies don't, you know, they've all been done prior to the boosters. So we also don't know yet at this point if the booster reduces the risk compared to say two shots of an mRNA vaccine. So at this point, um, hopefully, hopefully it at least reduces absolute risk. Um, but whether or not it reduces relative risk, we, we, we still don't know. This episode is sponsored by Wondrium, the place for everyone who has ever wondered about anything, which we have been loving the educational content. I have just been so into our 22-day free trial, like maybe a little too much. 
That doesn't surprise me at all. Both our families love to learn, which Wondrium is wonderful at. Stacy, did you just make a pun? I tried. I'm a little bit embarrassed, but (laughs) let me just say how awesome Wondrium is. No matter how much you have time for, I've been loving tuning into the On This Day in History as a way to time block short bursts for myself, like when I'm cleaning up my inbox, because they're only seven to nine minutes each. And then I have so many things on my watch list. When I first found the magic that is Wondrium, I launched right into the science category and binged the mind-blowing science series by Scientific American, which obviously hit every button for me. But I've also been really enjoying Learning French, a rendezvous with French-speaking cultures taught by Professor Anne Williams. I realized after running into a native French speaker on a dog walk recently that my French is super rusty. And this series has been amazing at bringing my French back up to snuff. I love that. There's also cognitive behavioral therapy ones, which are awesome. CBT has been huge for our family, and that series is a gold mine. I love the format of the ones that I've watched so far with a mix of video and interviews. You can deep dive with online video educational content or simply listen and learn. I'm a sucker for windows that shrink for multitasking. (laughs) Um, Plus, like you said, all the physical and mental wellness classes, the scientific classes, history classes are queued up for me as well. I love that we have so much available to access with a 22-day free trial. Yes. As curious, learning-minded podcast listeners, we know you're going to love Wondrium. And right now, our listeners get a special free 22-day trial offer to celebrate the new year. But you need to sign up through the special URL, wondrium.com slash wholeview. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash wholeview and get your learning on today. Uh, despite every effort that you can possibly make. And therefore, what can we do to support ourselves and our loved ones? And I think that being said, also letting go of the guilt or shame might be associated with it, right? I think that there's a lot of that and also learning to just kind of like let go, you know, give yourself some grace that if it does happen um, or someone you know gets it, hopefully there's not this kind of negative association with, well, you should have done blah, 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 or, you know, whatever. Or if someone you know tells you that they have it and that now you're exposed, um, obviously, I think we're all hopefully filling our lives with people who have the best of intentions. Um, So uh, when to like assume the best and okay, now I know what do I do? If that makes sense. 
Yeah, and I I know we'll we'll talk a lot more about our personal experience with Omicron last week over on the Patreon, but I think one of the most important things for me was even leading up to, you know, watching the infections rise and watching um watching the community spread here go from extreme to 300 times higher than extreme or not 3 30 times higher than extreme. Um that's still a lot. It's still so much. Um, you know, letting go of the guilt while also still taking steps to try not to get it, I think was a kind of a, a, a challenging sort of mental line to walk, but I think it's one that I highly recommend. So again, it's worthwhile taking steps to try to avoid exposure, like wearing an N95 or KN95, avoiding high-risk activities like indoor gatherings with unmasked people uh, who haven't been previously screened um, and have a a negative test in order to be there. Um, Those are the types of of situations that there's high levels of spread. Um, And as we talked about last week on the show, Omicron is incredibly contagious. And as we talked about Last week on the show, the data has only gotten stronger in the last week of the importance of getting boosted um, to lower risk of symptomatic infection with Omicron. So, if uh, you know, we've we've done I think seven thousand five hundred twenty-three shows on the vaccines, uh, including the booster, um, and so we've got a lot of just the basic science behind those for for you. And we'll obviously put links to the previous shows in uh, the show notes for this show. Um, but I highly encourage all of our listeners, if you still aren't sure, to have a conversation with your doctor and discuss with your doctor whether or not getting vaccinated and or boosted is right for you. Um, that is the the best person to be able to know your health concerns and be able to give you personalized uh, advice one way or the other. So those things being our foundation, right, hand washing, social distancing, masks, Uh, vaccination and boosting, right? Those are our foundations. What can we do to uh, support our health so that we are in the best possible situation going into a potential infection with the Omicron variant to uh, improve our chances of a very mild, if not asymptomatic case? Um, And this is really interesting because now two two years into the pandemic, there's actually some really interesting data on nutrients, diet, and lifestyle factors to be able to talk about. And our listeners will recognize that all of this is completely consistent with things we've talked about on the show a million times. But I think it's really helpful to go through the data. So let's start with nutrients. Um, Vitamin D is arguably the most important nutrient to optimize uh, just in general because it's Uh, Deficiency is incredibly common, so approximately 75% of us are deficient or insufficient in Western countries across the globe. And vitamin D is incredibly important for immune health, but also for the health of every um, epithelial barrier tissue, which the lungs are as well. And there's tons of studies, you know, for decades now showing that vitamin D is really important for reducing the risk of upper respiratory infections. And there's actually now been um, some really big, you know, meta-analyses, systematic reviews looking at vitamin D status and COVID-19 and showing that even being insufficient, 
So, um, you know, deficiency is defined as less than 30 nanograms per milliliter. Insufficient is defined as being between 30 and 50. Um, So even being insufficient is associated with about a 50% increase in getting COVID-19, about an 80% increase in hospitalization, um, somewhere in the two to three times increase in ICU admission, and something like two to four times higher mortality. And obviously deficiency and severe deficiency are even worse. So optimal vitamin D from A, reducing uh, the probability of a moderate to severe course of of COVID-19 or mortality from COVID-19 is from these scientific papers considered to be between 50 and 90 nanograms per milliliter. And I will point our listeners to episode 354, where we talked about vitamin D at length, all the different amazing things that it does, but also the importance of test, don't guess, um, getting your vitamin D levels, testing, supplementing accordingly, and then retesting every three months to make sure that you are supplementing with enough vitamin D to bring your levels up and also not overshooting the mark. And that it can be a bit of a moving target because some people need to change their vitamin D dose based on the season and some people don't. Um, So working with your doctor to optimize your vitamin D is just important for general health uh, always, Um, but it's also looking at these statistics uh, in meta-analyses, extremely important for uh, lowering risk of COVID-19 as well. and help with your cold, which is a zinc-based mm-hmm. support. So what does the science say about zinc and COVID-19? So it's really no surprise that zinc would be beneficial uh, in the case of COVID-19, given how essential it is for the immune system, and that approximately 73% of us routinely don't consume the recommended daily intake of zinc. But what's fascinating about the couple of studies that have been done so far, not enough for a systematic review like vitamin D, but there's definitely been quite a few studies looking at zinc. It definitely seems to be better at prevention than treatment, meaning it's better to make sure that you're getting enough zinc going into COVID-19 infection compared to, I'm starting to feel sick, let me take all the zinc. So, I mean, that's just part of the Nutrivore philosophy, right? Getting all of the nutrients that we need from the foods that we eat, ideally. Um, But there was a really impressive study that um, had the participants take 10, 25, or 50 milligrams of zinc supplements per day. And they actually corrected for things like vitamin D levels, which was really important in this study to hone in on just the impact of that zinc. And they showed that even when they adjusted for comorbidities, that the groups that were taking uh, zinc um, compared to the group who were not had were eight times 
less likely or seven and a half times less likely to develop symptomatic COVID-19 infection compared to the people who weren't taking any zinc. So again, um, definitely always better to get zinc from food. Uh, shellfish is your best choice, but we, we talked about zinc, um, and the best food sources at length in episode 437. Um, but the studies are showing that getting enough zinc ahead of time, good. And an important thing about getting zinc from food is prolonged zinc supplementation can, uh, cause copper deficiency. So another really important thing about zinc from food uh, and always remember, we're not medical professionals. If you want to take a supplement after we've talked about something on the show, please check with your doctor every single time. Um, and then just to, to show, you know, there was a study where they um, took patients who were newly diagnosed and they uh, were given either zinc, vitamin C or both or neither and showed actually that it didn't impact the uh, duration of symptoms compared, that was the main thing they were looking at was how long they were sick compared to not taking anything. So again, uh, much better to just consume enough zinc on a, on a regular basis. I think the nutrient that has been more surprising to me, Stacey, in terms of uh, reducing the, the chances of bad COVID-19 is magnesium because magnesium is not traditionally thought of as being the most important like immune health mineral but it actually is really important for vitamin D activity so there's been studies that show that um when we're magnesium deficient it like increases our susceptibility to oxidative stress um and it also has a variety of negative effects on the cardiovascular system. So given what we know about microclots, that might be the explanation. Um, but there's actually some studies showing, again, it's not that once you get sick, taking all the mag magnesium, but not being magnesium deficient going in is, is really important. And there was actually one study that combined vitamin D, magnesium, and B12 supplementation in uh, hospitalized patients with COVID-19 and showed that um, the people who had that nutrient cocktail had a way lower um, a chance of needing oxygen. It was like 87% lower chance of needing oxygen and an 80% lower chance of uh, needing intensive care support compared to the patients who did it. It was a small study and again, sort of looking at already hospitalized patients with COVID-19, um, but, but quite interesting to sort of show that magnesium is another, um, another mineral that may be really important. And there's been other studies that have shown that um, patients who are low in magnesium and phosphate actually um, have a higher chance of severe COVID-19. So again, maybe not the most important in terms of treatment, um, but definitely another one to make sure we're getting enough of every day. And we talked about magnesium on episode 409. It was all, that whole episode was all about magnesium. <laughs> I also 
Oh, I just want to emphasize like the stress part of it that you mm. are referencing because I think that has been huge for me in my own nutrient sufficiency health journey over the past year is I was already supplementing with magnesium. Like I was already aware that I needed more magnesium and um, was actively working to reduce my own stress and all those kinds of things and still was insufficient. And through testing, I'm now um, nutrient sufficient with magnesium. But I think one of the things that's really important is if you go into getting COVID-19, Omicron or not, for me, it wasn't Omicron, right? But you, and you're very stressed, right? Like you're not sleeping or, and, or you're nutrient deficient and, or you have a high stress lifestyle. Um, I think in general, we've seen that those things have a negative effect and off also lead to a higher likelihood of things like high blood pressure or um, smoking and drinking, which all have increased risk of negative outcome as well. And so to me, it's not actually as surprising with magnesium um, because I know how much if you are stressed, you are deficient in magnesium and how that might have, you know, negative outcome. But I am blown away by the numbers of that vitamin D magnesium B12 cocktail having the results that it did, right? Like yeah. hearing that that being low in magnesium has a higher likelihood of negative outcome makes total sense to me, especially from the stress perspective. But that cocktail having the um, success, I mean, there's no other word for it, that it does is incredible. However, I want to just pause for a moment to say this is how a nugget of truth gets extrapolated into conspiracy theories of, well, if everybody just had vitamin D, magnesium, and B12, or if they were just nutrient sufficient, then they wouldn't have all these negative outcomes. And that is not what you're saying at all that the science says. Um, I just really want to just maybe like take a second to put that there for a minute and make sure that we're not going down, you know, conspiracy alley. Yeah, thank you so much, because we're also going to talk about vitamin C sort of in this similar fashion in the sense that, you know, studies have shown that uh, severe cases of COVID-19, that those patients have a, are about 82% of critically ill patients had low vitamin C values. And there was, you know, one study, again, not a huge study, where they give high dose IV vitamin C in um, patients uh, who in the hospital and showed that it had a a pretty impressive effect on uh, about half to the likelihood of needing oxygen. And it had a really big effect on um, mortality uh, over four weeks. However, there's no nutrient cocktail, right? All of these, all of these studies make a case for, nutrient sufficiency on a daily basis, improving our health, right? And none of these say there's a magic cocktail for if we get COVID, that all we need to do is take, you know, 10 milligrams of zinc and 2000 IU of vitamin D, and then that's going to be the magic solution. None of these studies support that approach at all. Um, What they're saying is these nutrients are really important for 
immune health and for our, you know, ability to recover from this particular infectious disease that's based on also um, decades and decades and decades of science looking at how these nutrients actually, how they're used in the human body. So none of these things, okay, I was a little bit surprised about magnesium, but none of these are super surprise, um, but none of them are a magic bullet either, right? So um, it's worthwhile looking at, I recommend, you know, doing a, a food journal for a couple of days, something like chronometer or my fitness pal that will give you micronutrient data and have a look, see if you're getting enough zinc, see if you're getting enough magnesium, see if you're getting enough vitamin C note that we talked about nutrients depleted by stress in episode 446 and, um, and then get your vitamin D levels tested, right? That's, that's the other action step there. And, um, and then tweak, see if you can do, see if you can do better. Um, what's really interesting too, is that there's studies showing that a veggie forward diet, which is what we've talked about for, uh, the whole time we've been doing this podcast, um, uh, you know, eating a, what we would say a a plant forward plant focused diet rather than a plant based diet, but, uh, eating a lot of vegetables has been associated with, um, lower odds of moderate to severe COVID-19 in quite a few studies. And that sort of um, eating pattern with lots of vegetables and, you know, whole food sources of fiber and oily fish has also been associated with lower risk of uh, symptomatic infection as well as lower risk of severe disease and mortality. So when we pull all of those things together, it's just making yet another case for a nutrivore approach to food. And yes, that may increase our resilience to infection, but again, it's not going to make any of us bulletproof. I also want to just say that since we talked a lot about long COVID, prioritizing this nutrient sufficiency, both with um, additional fruits and vegetables, as well as um, supplementation was required for me, um, I ended up needing a lotion of magnesium. So a topical absorption in order to get um, my levels to where I wanted them to be. Really honing in on that with testing and, you know, medical professionals and all that kind of stuff has, as I mentioned, reduced my long COVID. So could it be the amount of time that I've had it? Yes, but I've had it like a year and a half and I was starting to see results just in the last couple of months since I've really been focused on this nutrient sufficiency. And I think going back to this idea of, well, what might that be from, regardless of if it were autoimmune related or if it were, um, just inflammation related, which we have talked about before. And the science definitely um, can see that there is additional inflammation. I mean, if you have a persistent infection or if you have autoimmune disease, you're going to have inflammation, right? So in being able to bring down that inflammation with um, all those nutrient sufficiencies, but also sleep. So I just really want to emphasize whether you get an infection or you're recovering from an infection or you're trying to prepare for an infection, the more sleep your body has, that is literally when your body is healing. The 
the cellular turnover and the increase of healing happens while you are sleeping. So it's not just the amount of time that you're in a bed, it's also the quality of the sleep that you're getting and ensuring that is something that's um, happening in order for your body to thrive. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned sleep. We we shared the, this as a sort of preview with our, our Patreon fam last week, um, but studies show that the habitual sleep that you're getting going into an Omicron infection is a major risk factor if you're not getting enough sleep. There was a study done out of China where they differentiated between people who were getting enough sleep versus definitely not, and then people who were just on the bevel, right? Like getting seven hours, right? If the if the recommended is seven to nine and you get seven hours, that might be enough sleep for you, but it might not be. And what they showed was um, people who were getting maybe enough sleep, right? Again, sort of like on that bevel, still had 6.7 times higher chance of uh, having a, a severe infection with COVID-19. And the people who didn't get enough sleep on a, on a regular basis leading into, they were looking at the week prior, what are your sleep habits the week prior to your, your diagnosis? They had 8.6 times higher risk of a severe infection compared to people who got enough sleep. Um, and this has been shown in other areas of the world too. There was a study out of the UK that showed, uh, interestingly, they measured this as daytime sleepiness, right? So feeling tired and sleepy, maybe, um, maybe being the kind of person who's sleepy enough to, to fall asleep and have a, have a nap if you have a quiet moment in the day. Although napping itself didn't seem to have a, a causal link with COVID-19 outcomes, daytime sleepiness as a proxy for not getting enough sleep at night or right having insomnia, something like that. Uh, increased uh, risk of hospitalization with COVID-19 by 4.5 times. And interestingly, activity was also really important. So that same Chinese study showed that um, being sedentary increased risk of severe COVID-19 by 19 times. And then having irregular exercise, right, not not meeting the exercise guidelines, increased risk of illness by three times. And then another study out of the UK compared meeting guidelines, which is 150 minutes of moderate activity like walking per week compared to sedentary, uh, increased risk of hospitalization uh, by 2.26 times being sedentary compared to at least 150 minutes a week of moderate activity, increased risk of ICU admission by 1.73 times, increased risk of death by 2.5 times. Um, and then they showed an in-between for people who were getting some physical activity. It was defined between 11 and 149 minutes per week. Um, and so studies have also shown very interestingly that intense activity, vigorous exercise, does not um, actually change the the ratio, um, that it's just moderate activity, right? Just being active is is what is important. So you do not have to go do that high-intensity interval training thing at the gym. Um, if that's not your thing, it's, it's definitely not mine. I mean, if that's what you're into. <laughs> if, sure. Um, it didn't show that vigorous activity was harmful, but it showed that 
the moderate activity, things like walking, right? Um, That type of activity is what was protective. And what is very, very important, very, very important about these studies is things that they controlled for were things like age, sex, smoking status, and measures of obesity. I really want to emphasize that because we talked in episode 471 and 472 about being overweight or being obese not automatically making you unhealthy and instead uh, being a sign that potentially something else is going wrong, but also potentially you're perfectly healthy. And these studies, you know, really confirm, again, even though you'll see all over, you know, various, you know, public health websites that obesity increases risk of severe COVID. Again, what these studies that are that are using that as a variable in their statistical analysis and showing that activity is beneficial independent of weight for reducing risk of COVID-19 are again supporting this incredible body of scientific literature that we've already done this deep dive into showing that obesity itself is not a health problem. It can, for some people, indicate an underlying condition that needs uh, some changes, or it can, for some people, be a sign of poor health-related behaviors. And for those people, it's the underlying condition, right? Maybe it's high stress or hypothyroidism um, or uh, some kind of gut dysbiosis, or maybe it's the poor health-related behaviors, right? Sedentary lifestyle, um, you know, uh, very poor diet quality. It's those things that are increasing the risk of all of the things, right? We covered things like cardiovascular disease and cancer in episodes 471 and 472. Here, it's those things that are increasing risk of severe COVID-19. And I I really think this is important to emphasize, given that uh, it's this myth still persists in our community that um, if I'm an active person who, um, if I'm a fit person, if I have a six pack of abs, um, then I'm I'm impervious uh, to this disease. And you know we've seen a way too many examples of perfectly healthy, fit young people die tragically of COVID nineteen to be able to make that statement. But also, you know, this this science is confirming that COVID-19 is not a fat person's disease. It's an infectious disease. And there are certainly diet and lifestyle factors that may increase your risk of a more severe outcome. But it is not um, it is not something that any amount of diet or lifestyle will make us impervious to. I remember early on into the pandemic seeing a graphic that was shared by someone in the health community that showed like the percentage of people who were dying of COVID was like a a higher percentage of being overweight. And I Googled the population percentage of people who were overweight and it was the exact same percentage. (laughs) 
And I was like, this is so twisted to like take the information, but it's basically just representing the population, right? Like there wasn't an increase. Like if we say 60% of the population, I forget what it was, was overweight. And 90% of the people who are dying are overweight. Then maybe you could say there's a correlation. You don't even know that's causation at that point, right? But yep. you say it's a correlation. But that wasn't what was happening. It was like 60%, 60%. And I'm like, this this proves nothing. Like This is no information. So, um, But as time has gone on and we've learned more about the um, cofactors and things that increase the risk. So for example, like you said, high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, also, I think we covered early on the increased risk of uh, not just activity, but like I said, smoking and alcohol also mm-hmm. significantly, significantly contributing. And there are a lot of people who are not overweight who have those things and that doesn't mean that they're bad people and it doesn't mean that the people who are overweight and not having those behaviors or can uh conditions are bad people like none of it none of it has I think there's just such opportunity to put judgment on people and this is something I've really realized in the pandemic that this idea of health makes us feel glorified in some sort of way like we're better than somebody else if we are doing activities for our own health. Like we have to, you know, post photos of ourselves going to the gym all the time. And I'll be the first one to say that I was super guilty of that myself, right? Or like the meals that we're making or eating and we share them when they're, you know, smoothie bowls and salads, but not when we're having, you know, dark chocolate and fries or whatever it is. I don't know. And I just feel like there's this focus on, well, that's not me or I'm better or I'm doing this thing. And um, it's tragic what is happening to around the globe to so many loved ones, regardless of their behaviors, regardless of their health conditions, like regardless of their age or their weight or any of these things. Like, it is incredibly sad that we have for the first time in, you know, a hundred years and hopefully, you know, for many, many more, we are witnessing something that is incredibly tragic in a way that has never been witnessed in this country before. We didn't have social media and photos and, you know, in the internet and all these sort of things previously when we've had these pandemics. And we can look at the Spanish flu or we can look at the plague and we can, you know, read stories or see drawings about how sad it was. But we are witnessing it right here and to be able to like look at a photo and say well that's that person's fault because they're fat like that is not that is tragic that is that is so sad to me that that is a mentality that the world is taking instead of saying like all people are deserving of quality of life all people are deserving of health and um it's it also speaks to as we've talked previously on the show about the inequities of how this pandemic has affected more vulnerable populations whether it be you know from race or from access to good healthcare or access to food and a lot of the things that we talk about here on the show like a veggie forward diet with taking supplements like not all people have access to that kind of lifestyle, but it doesn't mean that they deserve to die more than somebody else. Uh, I just agree completely. And I want to make sure that 
we're very clear in walking this line saying, you know, it is very important to address these lifestyle habits for, you know, basically improving the possibility of a a really great outcome if you get exposed to COVID-19, but also for general health, right? We've talked about the importance of sleep and activity and a Nutrafol diet on the show a bajillion times. I mean, every week pretty much, right? Um, So these things are really important when looked through the lens of COVID-19, in addition to being really important all the time, and they're important independent of weight. And, um, and so I think it's, it's important to know that these are things that will reduce your chances of severe disease, but also understand that you can do all of these things and that will not make you impervious to COVID-19. And that's where vaccinations and boosters are really important. That's where reducing chance of exposure is really important. So what Uh, I'm hoping we're communicating effectively is the importance of a very sort of multimodal approach to protecting ourselves and preparing for Omicron, where we're looking at what we can tweak with our diets and maybe supplements uh, to, to help our bodies, you know, be healthier and be in a better place for when we are exposed to Omicron, as well as what we can do with our lifestyle, but then also understand that um, this diet and lifestyle is not taking away the incredible value of the vaccinations and boosters, as we've talked about on the show. Again, we're not medical professionals, and we encourage you to, if you have concerns, to speak to your doctor about those and know if you have some kind of contraindication to getting a vaccine. That's certainly the case for some people. So uh, looking at this, though, from that that 20,000 foot view, community protection uh, perspective, you know, the ideal situation is if we can address uh, some of these risk factors for public health um, challenges in general, like, uh, you know, a, a culture that doesn't value sleep, and, uh, and certainly, uh, challenges to getting, uh, activity for, for a lot of us, um, on a consistent basis and also, you know, challenges to consistently eating a veggie forward, nutrient dense diet, um, and making those things more equitable and making, um, the information available for vaccines and boosters and, and what the, um, incredible, you know, safety and efficacy profiles of those are broadly available. And we've tried to do that on the show. And I, I hope it's clear to our listeners um, that we are we are emphasizing the importance of diet and lifestyle here while not saying that those are a substitute for vaccines. I want to also take a quick moment to tell people that if you have not already, you can go to usps.com and order COVID tests. So mm-hmm. I know we talked last week about how difficult it is to get testing. I ordered mine. They're on their way. They're not here yet. But um, that's something, you know, you can have on hand if you think that you might have been exposed or that you're feeling symptoms. Um, but I thought maybe we could just wrap up with some of the other things that we'd like to have at home. Um, and I shout out to USPS because if you don't know, my husband's a mail carrier. So <laughs> um, shout out, shout out. Oh my goodness. The 
listen, our mail carriers, if you, if I'm just going to, I'm going to huge shout out your mail carrier. If you have not yet, um, probably hasn't had a vacation in two years and would love a thank you note from you. And they are able to accept gift cards up to $20 if you want to put one in there. But even, even, I did not know that. Yep. Even just a note that says how much you appreciate them goes a long way. So especially since they're going to be delivering uh, at-home tests to everybody over the next couple of weeks. So. Yep, we ordered yeah. ours as well. And and we, we had some in the house. Um, that was how we diagnosed last week. So um, that, that I think is extremely helpful to have the at-home test so that um, you can get an answer quickly. Do note that the at-home tests have a lower sensitivity than the PCR tests. So it's recommended if it's negative to take them a couple of days in a row if you're symptomatic. So they're, if they're positive, they're positive. If they're negative, uh, different studies have shown anywhere between a 35 and 85% sensitivity. So just know that if it's negative, it doesn't mean for sure no, especially if you're symptomatic. So, um, so that's just, I think, important information the other thing that we had in the house that I was really glad that we had last week was a thermometer for tracking fevers and an oximeter for tracking uh, oxygen saturation in the blood. Um, those things were, uh, it was just really important, I think, for my anxiety to be able to have data to go, okay, you know, I know exactly what we're dealing with right now. Um, so those things were, were very important. And I would also recommend, so with Omicron, the headache is, uh, really intense or can be, um, as can be just the, the malaise and the sore throat can actually be really bad. So if you have, uh, whether it's a supplement or an over-the-counter medication that is your go-to for symptom management so that you could rest comfortably, that is also something I'd recommend having on hand ahead of time, noting that, um, it is all things being equal. It's better to let the fever do its thing. Um, the immune system is working more effectively, uh, during that, that fever, as long as it's not, you know, high enough to be risk of febrile seizure, or you're not susceptible. Obviously there's talk to your doctor that that's the, there's those caveats as well. Um, but also if, you know, a headache, is making it so that you can't sleep, then there's a trade to, you know, making sure that you're managing symptoms well enough to be able to, to rest and sleep. Um, there, that's, that's an important trade because getting enough rest and sleep is extremely important for recovery. And I want to say that having carbohydrates on hand was very helpful for me. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, that was also the same in our house. Yeah. Uh, gluten-free bread was the only thing anyone wanted to eat. Broth cooked rice was our go-to. So have broth on hand if you can make some now and put it in your freezer. I think it's always good to have on hand, but I like all I wanted was carbohydrates. And actually when I got my boosters, I like went through a 24 hour period where it felt the same. Um, anyway, so yeah, I would say broth in the freezer and um, like for your sore throat, um, having tea with good honey on hand, mm -hmm. um, things like that, you know, just if you have them, then it's one less thing that you have to worry about. And honestly, you know, it's a superstition in our house. Like if you're prepared for things like this, if you have all these things, 
then you won't need them, right? Like it's when bringing an umbrella so it doesn't exactly burn. yes. Yeah. So if you don't have them, then you're going to be wishing that you did, and it's very hard to acquire things when you're in quarantine. So the other thing that was really helpful for us was um, beverages to ply people to stay hydrated. Yeah. Um. So you know, uh, my 12 year old had a day of 102 plus fever. And keeping her hydrated that day meant lots of juice. And that was fine. <laughs> like, I was just happy to get liquid into her and, and keep her hydrated. Again, the immune system works better when we're hydrated. Um, so uh, any kind of, like, treat beverages like that, um, you know, I, I, w- I wouldn't have felt good about it if it was soda. But, um, you know, something like juice, kombucha, um, you know, again, it was like sparkling apple cider was was her thing. Um, some kind of, of beverage, maybe it's tea, um, to, to help stay hydrated because that beverage is really soothing and, and tasty. I think that's another, that was another thing I was really glad that we had on hand. Um, and if you're a family and you're expecting it to go through the whole family, anything that's going to save you a trip out, um, is, is helpful to have on hand. So if, uh, regular medications. I mean, groceries are quite easy to have delivered nowadays, but, um, just being able to like figure out how no one leaves the house for a week, whatever you need on hand for that. That is, that is the other, the other thing that I think is, um, definitely helpful going into this. Absolutely. Well, we're going to dive into personal experience over on the Patreon. If you want to join us, that's patreon.com slash the whole view. And if you have made it this far, thank you so much. We really, 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 really hope that this is our last COVID-19 show. I'm knocking on wood. Um, And we'll be back again next week. We have a great question that we're looking forward to answering. Vlog. And I'm at the Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.